Hey guys, as you know, our world is going through an unprecedented time during the COVID-19 pandemic. To strike out this virus, we, as coaches, have partnered with Fred Hutch Research Institute, who is working on the front lines to stop the spread of COVID-19. Please consider donating to hashtag coaches versus COVID, and here's a word from Hutch. Your support for Fred Hutch is a strike against COVID-19 and a step toward a healthier world. Right now, Hutch scientists with expertise in infectious disease, immunology, public health, and data science are working urgently to speed up testing, track the spread of the virus in real time, and safely test new treatments and vaccines. Your contribution to Coaches vs. COVID will help expand this urgent work. Donate now at fredhutch.org slash coaches versus COVID. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. Today's conversation is with two outstanding college hitting coaches in Neil Walton from Cal State Northridge and Ron Prettyman from the University of Washington. On the show, we discuss how they trained hitters through collaboration and freedom. We talk about how we can best adapt to our players. We go over game planning, scouting reports, and how to adjust to the in-game scenarios that we will see. Both of these guys are rising stars on the collegiate level, and you don't want to miss this conversation with Ron Prettyman and Neil Walton. Two really, really good hitting coaches, and uh, we get to we get to hear hear them speak on whatever we want today. So we'll be selfish and, and ask them the questions that we want. But again, on on the sidebar, and uh, but if you don't mind, since I'm I'm looking at at you right now, Neil. Uh, go ahead and, and give us a real short snapshot of how you or your just your journey through baseball and how you decided to get into coaching. Gotcha. Um, well, I had uh, good experiences coming up in baseball, starting in Little League, going through high school, great coaches. Uh, a lot of my good friends now I, I met way back when um, and have stayed with them through baseball, went off to college and had a great experience there. Um, Played four years in the minors with Tampa Bay. Um, and I was a pretty good defender, not an amazing hitter. And I, you know, I was going to the field doing baseball every day and just felt like I could maybe be a better teacher than player even. Um, and had a good experience, but decided to stop playing. At the time, um, I I'd finished my degree. I was going back to do grad school uh, and I wanted to do sports psychology stuff. I'd had good experiences with Kendra Visa during my time at Fullerton as a player um, and, and thought that was an area that I could help guys. Um, and so went back and uh, did grad school. Uh, was doing the sports psych stuff. During that time, I was doing stuff with different teams, uh, a lot of different sports, even coached uh, college golf for two years at Fullerton men's and women's golf, which was a neat experience, but felt like baseball was the, the area I knew the best and could have the greatest impact and I just wanted to be on the field, uh, be in the competing as much as possible. So I was putting together PhD packets and, and coaching college baseball seemed like a better route than continuing the school and, and trying to be a professor. So mm -hmm. 
walked over to the baseball field at, at Fullerton that I was going to a lot and said I wanted to be around as much as possible. And I was a, a manager that year. And then here I am now after uh, the years after that. I love it. Uh, Ronnie, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, I definitely uh, had a good experience playing growing up and um, had a had an opportunity to play at Cal State Fullerton. And actually, for people that may not know, Neil and I were teammates. Um, so we've kind of grown as players and then grown as coaches together as well. So um, after Fullerton, I was fortunate to play six years as well in the minor leagues. And, uh, you know, when, when my career ended, it was kind of I got out of baseball <laughs> for a brief stint. And just kind of reevaluating, like my wife and I moved to the Midwest and she went back to school and, uh, and just, I got into, I was a realtor for a, for a year. And then I was a finance manager at a car dealership and, and then just, I, I got the bug, man. I started missing it, started missing being back out on the field, missing being around the guys, which I think, uh, for everybody that, um, you know, gets away from baseball for a little bit, that's what you you really miss is just showing up to the yard every day and, and getting to be around people that love the sport like you do. And, um, mm-hmm. so I did that. I got the opportunity from Rick Heller, who's at Iowa now to be his volunteer at Indiana state, uh, back in 2000, well, the fall of 11 and 2012 was my first year coaching there at Indiana state and kind of just did that for a couple of years. And then I got to coach at Cal state Fullerton and, then I got to coach at Loyola Marymount, and now I'm at University of Washington. I love it. And I, and I think every time I see you guys, or one of you, both of you are together, so I know that, that you guys are, are very like-minded in a lot of different things, which I think that leads uh, to a really cool conversation. And so I, I, I'm going to start with uh, – I'm going to go back to Neil. Uh, this was your first year, okay? And it was a, obviously a, a slightly abbreviated year, which, which sucks for all of us. Uh, but let's go back to like that first meeting. So you show up on campus and you don't, you didn't recruit most of these guys. If, if any of these guys really, uh, and so you show up on campus and you're, you're, you got this plan put into place of what you want to talk about. Walk us through what that was. I know I've got your document that you sent me. If you want me to pull that up, I can do that as well, but just kind of walk us through what you thought was important to get across in that, in that first meeting, because I think it sets the tone for everything else. Gotcha. Let me, uh, can you hear me all right if I go now? Yeah, that's fine. Sure. That's better for me. Felt like I was at a cave or something. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> no, you're good. Yeah, I, you know, just thinking about this uh, this podcast and all the stuff we'll cover, I, I shared that document because it kind of organizes a lot of the, the thoughts that I have um, and maybe even keeps us on track. But, you know, I, I think it's good to show that a little later. Uh, I can go into sure. that question before then. Um, but as far as first meeting, you know, it's, it's really interesting starting to coach a team that is, you know, wasn't your team the year before. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was in grad school, I was working with some teams and I, I was fortunate to be around a couple college teams that had just started or been around new college coaches. So I personally had a little experience with that. Um, but it's, it's always new, obviously, and, and you don't know what to expect. And so in the first, first meeting we'd met as a staff and, and Dave Serrano, our head coach was leading a lot of what we wanted to, to do and how we wanted to approach it. And for us, 
we took over that program and it was interesting because there was a period of time where there was no coaches there. Um, so there were some current players that were figuring out if they wanted to stay or go. There was incoming players that were figuring out if they wanted to, to, to go to Northridge or, or go somewhere else, which is all very understandable. And so when we got there, we, we pulled in some guys late recruiting wise and we felt it was important to, um, make sure that the guys that were there knew that we appreciated that they were there. Um, and we also didn't know what we were working with. So one of our decisions was in the, the, the start of the fall. A lot of what we did was watching what they do um, and, and kind of seeing what we were working with before we fully said, okay, this is what we're going to do and let's change this. And this is more important than that. You know, we wanted to see what they were like when they were hitting. How did they go about the defensive stuff? Um, and so our, our initial meetings, that was something that we conveyed to them. Um, and obviously, you know, we started to create the practice structure and, and the structure of all things, even down to like where the baseballs go. You know, we started saying, hey, this is good. And this is, you know, maybe a, a, an important thing here. But there's a, a period of time where we, we just hit and we saw what we were working with. Um, and, and looking back, that was a, a good thing. And I think that allowed them to realize that we wanted to see who they were and how they were. It, it wasn't about us, which, which I think is important. It was about them. And then once we got all together and, and they knew what they were working with on our end and we knew what we were working with, then it was, it was about, okay, how do we make all of this as good as possible as a group? No, fantastic. And, uh, and so, Ronnie, you've gotten uh, the last couple of years to be able to, to find your guys and, and to understand the changes that they need to make. And so you, you've gotten that luxury. And so tell us, tell us a little bit about that because that's, that's a completely different dynamic of when you have a group of guys that you know versus like with, with Neil, a group of guys that he doesn't know. And I, and I love that answer, by the way. You're just kind of letting them, letting them uh, be free and, and figure out what they're going to do, which I'm sure they really appreciated. They wouldn't want a guy that, that comes in and, and just says, hey, you got to change all of this stuff in the first week. Uh, but that's awesome. And so just uh, walk us through kind of what your off-season plan was like. Uh, uh, Ronnie, back to you. And, uh, and then we'll get into some communication within that, if you don't mind. Yeah, so, um, you know, I came into the, uh, the situation with the University of Washington last season was my first season, and, um, you know, I was coming into a team that had just been to Omaha and uh, had mm -hmm. some kind of established success rolling um, and going pretty good. So it was a unique uh, experience for myself to kind of come in and, and have guys that had experience, had experience with success, um, and making sure kind of like what Neil was talking about, not to come in and try to, you know, overdo things and try to tell them like, hey, you know, you, we need to change a lot of what you've been doing because a lot of what they were doing was was giving them success. So mm -hmm. being careful not to, um, you know, go in there with that mentality. And, you know, a lot of that first year was about trying to build trust with guys. Mm -hmm. um, and then coming into this year, and, and I think as we'll talk later, you know, it, it's that's a lot about what hitting is – and being a hitting coach, especially at our level is, is we're dealing with young men that are trying to, 
um, be better and, and try and mm-hmm. you have to build their trust. And so that takes time a lot of times. And that's not a, a something that's really easy to accomplish in a short amount of time. So letting guys have some freedom is a big deal there. Um, this fall, what we did, uh, you know, after spending the summer, uh, with some guys that I really respect in the game and just spending some, the summer just evaluating what we could do better and how we could train better and, and all that. Um, you know, we, we did a, we did a lot more this fall with, um, machines and making sure our guys were in a, in an atmosphere where it was, it was difficult. It was a difficult setting. Um, and that was, uh, something that was a little bit different than how we'd approached it in the past and how I've approached it in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, we definitely used our fall for kind of implementing systems and working on swing techniques and mechanical issues, uh, mm-hmm. any changes that we wanted to make. Uh, I'm a big believer that basically you try to get your guys to leave at Christmas break with a pretty good plan for what they need to do within themselves, within their swing, within their setup. Uh, and, and, and when they come back, um, hopefully they're in a good place and they, they put the work in during the break and they come back and it's not a lot of, Hey, we have to revamp this. We're going to clean this up. It just becomes, uh, come January when we're back at it, it becomes uh, a time to compete, a time to win a job, um, and a time to kind of roll with the swing that you have and, uh, you know, step into the box with your best chance to be successful without thinking about all the mechanical issues, especially in that spring. I love that. I love that answer. And, and Neil, again, with both of you guys, you're unmuted. So if, if you have anything or if you guys want to play off of each other, that's fine too. And then I'll just facilitate questions when I need to. But I did have a question uh, as far as, so you're setting up machines this fall and that was new, right? Uh, not new, just the, the, probably the, the amount that we hit off the machines was, it was more. Um, okay. So you know, I think a lot of us have used machines, but um, I think what we did this fall was just try to implement that, uh, to a higher degree and make sure that, um, you know, it was difficult mm-hmm. and, and it was, it was, uh, the atmosphere of, and what we talked to our guys a lot about it is, is when you have a difficult machine, you have mm-hmm. to approach it like it's a competition and a lot of guys can get discouraged because it's hard and, and all of us that were fortunate to play the game and, and, and try to hit off of a machine that throwing hard, it's a difficult thing to do, especially, you know, it's hard to find timing. It's hard to, hard to, um, you know, the machine might sink one and run one and it's going all over the place. So, um, it's difficult and it's easy for guys. And especially if they're in groups to get discouraged and just kind of, uh, agree that it's hard, that it's too hard. Um, but then if you can get them to, believe that it's a challenge and the game's hard and they're not always going to be successful in trying to overcome that. Um, I think that's, what's the best part about using the machines as much as we did is just letting them overcome the difficulty of it. Right. And that, uh, that was leading to, to what I was going to get to next is, was there a conversation that you had with those guys of like, Hey guys, we're going to, we're going to fail in practice because again, with you, they're trying to impress you every day. Uh, same thing, uh, same thing with Neil. And it's one thing to, you know, to have this plan as a coach that you're like, man, this is going to make them better in practice right? or better in games because they're going to, they're going to fail a lot in practice. But it's another thing as a player you're like, man, I, I look like, 
crap right now, like in front of, you know, these coaches that I'm trying to impress. So was that a conversation that you had with those guys? I know that we did. Yeah. I mean, and and it's a balance between, um, you know, making it so difficult that they don't feel good. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and and then, so, so there were days and I would call it feel good days. I wouldn't tell the players they were feel good days, but there were days where we get cages more, especially if we'd been doing a lot of difficult stuff just to kind of get that good feeling back, that confidence back, um, get it rolling back. But it's pretty impressive, man. If you looked at, guys that step in the box um, early against some of the, the heavy velo that we're doing or whatever, mm-hmm. how, how much they've been able to adjust to that and get better. And I think that that's a, you know, that's a testament to our guys and just and getting the group to understand that, Hey, this is not, this is not about making you fail and make you, make you feel bad. It's about, um, competing and finding a way to beat a machine. And if you can really approach it like that, uh, becomes, it becomes pretty special when you have a bunch of group guys jumping in and all of a sudden you're leaving to go home at night and they're in the cage and they're hitting off the velocity machine. And you're like, Oh, that's, that's cool. They think it's making them better, which I believe right. it is. Right. Neil, you got anything to add, uh, machine work or just anything that we've talked about in general? Um, yeah, I think, as I hear you guys talking, it kind of touches on the point that a lot of players want to feel comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of thing, a lot of activities, whether it's hitting or other things in baseball, if it's not easy and they haven't done it before, there's some pushback at times. Um, and I see that a lot of that is because that's what they're used to, you know, and you know, whether it's a high school player, uh, a college player, or a pro player, until they've been around some of the really, really, really good players and realize that those guys struggle or those guys are failing, um, realize that maybe, yeah, that guy's in the big leagues, but when he was a freshman in college, the velo machine was hard for him, even if he's an all-star in the big leagues. Or, you know, there, there's different settings on machines that, you know, you could do with multiple different pitches and whatnot. And and the guys think it's, well, that's not real. That's too hard. But when you see a really good player go in there and just mash off that machine, or at least do better than the rest, then that, you know, tunes everybody into like, whoa, maybe I'm actually not good or not good enough right now. And I need to, I need to figure it out. So, you know, using those examples and, and just understanding, you know, how, how tough it can be. And then also some of those tough things can actually be mastered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess lastly, like we've all seen the at-bats in the big leagues of a guy that swings and misses a couple times, fouls it off, and then hits the homer. Like you don't square the ball up every single time. Um, and, and that's just something that a lot of players, they don't actually realize that. And, and it's scary to not be comfortable, but if you can get – um, used to, to working and improving and you get to see some people around you exceeding at those things that maybe you think are tough. When they become aware of that, they're a lot more open to it, I feel, in my experience. I think oftentimes yeah. we, we forget how hard it was to be a player. I mean, when we're watching them every yeah. single day and they're doing things that are really good and it's like, oh man, this is really hard. Yeah, and you're going to have funky days. I mean... Mm-hmm. The, the guys that hit uh, uh, 
an example I, I like to tell our guys is if you take a guy, let's say in a pro ball season, which is tons of games and he hits 300, there's going to be a month where he hits 240 and there's going to be a month where he hits 310, 270, and he might have a 350 month and it all evens out to 300, but you could have watched him for a month and he hit 240. That doesn't mean he's bad. You know, that's mm-hmm. just where he's at at that time. And, and that's okay. It's, it's a, it's a journey as a hitter. Yeah, for sure. And so you, you use the fall Neil to try and evaluate uh, and, and you kind of let them and, and, uh, and Ronnie, you said kind of the same thing. You, you let them have some freedom within uh, the boundaries of, of the time constraints and, and what you guys have got going on. But, but Neil, I just wanted to know, you know, how long did you allow that before you started maybe suggesting some different things? And were, are there any, you know, and we can go back and forth with this, but are there any uh, just kind of things that you went in with an eye for of like your biases of you're like, hey, you know, these are some different habits that most, uh, if not, you know, you could say all or you could say most. These are the, the things that make most hitters successful. Uh, so question, I guess this is a multifaceted question apparently, uh, but you know, uh, how long did you, how long did you wait to start suggesting things? And then if you guys want to kind of go back and forth between, uh, what you guys are looking for as far as just the swing goes and, uh, you know, just where do you start? It could be video or it could just be, you know, watching a guy swing. Gotcha. Um, when I'm planning out, what to do, I start from the season and I work all the way back as much as I can. Um, and whether it's hitting, um, base running, defense, you know, whatever the lane is, whatever the category is, I got this big Excel spreadsheet with, with all the different things in each area. And I, and I start thinking, okay, when do I want to start putting in A? When do I want to go to B? When do I want to go to C? And so in this fall, we, we chose to take a period of time, especially in hitting where we wanted to see what we were working with. But there comes a time where, especially with a new group, because you have to put in so much stuff. Um, and, you know, every year it's like John Wooden, you hear how he started with tie your shoes, you know, every year, even if he has – you know, multiple national championships in a row, he's going to start with how do the guys tie their shoes. And I, I've found that that is a good way to do it because even if you have a returning junior, you know, he might think that tying his shoes is an important part and that could nip him in the butt down the road. So we chose to give him a little time to um, do what they're doing. And then as coaches, you start to feel, well, we can only do this for so long before we start getting behind. And at the time, we, we put the priority, and I think it was a good decision, we put the priority on let's see what we're working with. So if we're behind in certain areas, that's just how it was because of the situation we were in. Um, then when you start trying to influence the situation by saying this is good or this is bad, there's – um, five or so things that are important that we feel um, are important with hitting and that are going to apply to everyone. Um, and we could show that document a little bit later. But we all know that 
or, or we have found that where you stand in the box is important. You got to be able to cover the play and get to different pitches. You know, how you stand is important. Um, you can, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but you should be aware of if the, where you're starting is helping you get into a good swing and see the ball and whatnot. Timing, the position you get in as you get your swing going, uh, the actual swing itself and the finish there's some unique things to the, the swing, but those other categories are pretty similar as far as what's good and, and what's not great. So when we see guys that are, you know, not on time, when we see guys that are putting themselves in poor positions, trying to do too much, those things mm-hmm. that we can sit there and go, we know for sure that if you're late, it's not good. Hey man, you're late. I recommend that you make an adjustment even before we start working on the details of how to do it, sure. when you see those things that you know are going to work or be important for every hitter, you know, it's just a conversation. Um, so it kind of naturally started happening. And then, you know, t- to wrap up my answer, because you have the so many things that you need to be putting in, whether it's the situational hitting and the bunting, or you're just watching and seeing a guy not maximize his power. Mm-hmm. You, it becomes a conversation and and in my experience, it's pretty natural. You know, if you say, Hey, this could be better for these reasons, you know, a lot of the hitters, if not all are going to go, okay, yeah, I hear you. Let's do it. Yeah. What do you got? I think that, uh, you know, with, with what we want to teach as hitting coaches and what we value and what we think is important, we always do have biases. Um, and I think that what, what makes you a coach and what makes you grow as a coach is understanding that like hitting's not black and white. It's, you know, there's a lot of gray area in there and you know, a lot of people right now are thinking, especially if you get on Twitter and get into some of these threads, it's, it's, Hey, this, this is going to help make you a big leader. No, not that it's this. And, and the reality is, is, um, is hitting is hitting's unique and there's a lot of people with some unique skill sets and, and some different types of setups and swings. And, and the bottom line comes down to, does a guy square the ball up? Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, I'll be out evaluating hitters and I'll watch BP and love a guy's swing and, and not love another guy's swing. And then we get, we, we watch them in game or after, you know, at a showcase when they're facing live pitchers and, and uh, the guy that wasn't great in BP is squaring the baseball up in the game. And the guy with the good swing is good, but he's late or, he, you know, whatever. So um, I think that we, we as coaches have to evaluate like, hey, is this guy squaring the baseball up? And, and sometimes we're quick to change things because it doesn't look exactly how we want it to look. But um, you, you, just, you don't touch guys that are squaring it up consistently and, and when, when we're talking about bias, I think that one of the things that where I've grown as a coach and trying to continue to grow as a coach is whatever worked for myself as a player doesn't mean that it's going to work for the players that I'm coaching. So, um, you know, all of us are unique and how we think is unique and each individual player is unique. And I think the best guys understand that every player needs something different. Um, so you have to be able to speak the language of each individual player uh, and not just have your own hard-headed bias of what the swing should look like in your brain. So I think that there, like I said, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of giving guys freedom. Um, what I believe is, is the right way in my personal opinion is, 
is get guys to understand uh, how to be as athletic as possible uh, throughout their swing and throughout their setup. Um, and then if you think they're doing something that's going to like prohibit them from being better or being good in the game, give them suggestions. But if you can teach guys or if you can kind of guide guys into making their own decision on swing changes and, and setup changes and, and sure. really just feeling like they take ownership of it because it's their choice. I think that's the trick to being a good hitting coach is, is that if you see something that's a major flaw, that's going to really hurt a guy, um, have him figure it out on his own, you know, with your assistance, uh, instead of just coming in and saying, Hey, we got to change this. We have to do it this way. Um, there are times where you have to do that too, but generally I think it's much more effective when guys take ownership of it and say, Hey, like, well, it does, it, it feels good when I do this. What do you got on this? I'm like, yeah, man, that's nice. It looks good. looks right. Mm -hmm. So kind of uh, exceptionize them as Neil would say. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I'm gonna have to Google that and see what that word, that word is. Um, but as far as, uh, just getting them to build their own plans. Okay. And, and then taking into account, uh, we have listeners from youth level all the way, uh, to pro ball. What's your best advice? And both, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this of getting them to own that, because I think most good coaches would say that we want the player to be their own best coach, but then we all have done this, uh, what you just mentioned before of, of pressing a plan on a player, because we in, in the end we want them to get better and so we think that that's the best way to do it but how have you find how have you, how have you found uh and what has been successful for you of, of getting them to own a really good uh player development plan for themselves i'll go neil first go you for it. yeah i um i think what we've done and what what i think uh has been successful as far as getting guys to own that is uh we spend our fall like we talked about kind of um kind of developing the guys uh, within their swing. Uh, we work more mechanically in the fall. We work more on uh, some, a lot of different drills. Um, and I think my goal is to always spend the fall figuring out through communication. There's a lot of like, you know, the guys probably get annoyed by it, but I'm constantly, hey, fill out this questionnaire. And it's basically like, where are you at? What's working? What's not working? Self-evaluation. Um, and then basically throughout the fall, just trying to evaluate where each guy individually is at. And, and when they consistently tell you like, Hey, this works for me. Like when I do this drill, I feel really good. I leave feeling good. It, it helps slot me in or whatever. Um, and then essentially what we do is they leave for Christmas break with, uh, we call it like a prep work, um, plan. So basically it's their prep work for a game. And you know, what, what, what people have to understand is when we, especially when we go on the road, uh, you know, we don't have access to cages on the road. So there's times where guys are going to step in the cage on a Friday before a game and they're going to get in the cage and maybe be in there for nine to 11 minutes and then have to go out on the field, take their BP and then perform in the game. So they have to have a really good plan in that nine to 11 minutes to get themselves ready. So for me, the whole fall is about developing a good plan that you can do in a short amount of time that gets you the drills, whether it be T front toss, you know, what, whatever it is, it could be offset. It could be whatever makes this guy right. Um, and developing a kind of a, a good plan that gets him ready for the game. And literally that is different for every guy on our team. Um, so that, and that's developed through communication. Like I said, I have my, my prep worksheet for each, each guy. 
and it's like, Hey, this isn't really working for me anymore. Well, let's figure out another way to, you know, do what this was doing for you since it's not doing it anymore. So we try to have them communicate changes through that stuff Mm -hmm. with us. Uh, That's the biggest thing I think that frustrates me is if a guy starts to make a lot of changes or drastic changes to his, his daily work um, without communication. And that's, that's a breakdown. And that's what I talk to our guys about is like, I, I want to be there to help you and we're all there to help you. But if you're taking it upon yourself to go out and change a bunch of stuff without talking to us, mm-hmm. then there's a disconnect. And that's where we, we develop issues and guys start doing things and you're like, what the heck's that guy doing? You know? Right. So. right. Um, when, when it gets to plan or approach, that is a very interesting area in hitting. Um, and when you, when you bring up little league, high school, college pro ball, like the, the most beautiful approach, the most beautiful plan is a really simple one. Um, but in order to have the plan, you know, as far as what you do in the cage or, or what you're doing in practice or the approach, what you're doing at the plate, be simple. Us coaches have to help the players get there a lot of times. Um, one of the, the coolest things usually is when you watch little kids play, their approach is awesome. It's see ball, hit ball. Um, and they're probably thinking, can I hit this ball hard? Or is this a, a, a pitch that I can't hit hard so I won't swing at it, which is kind of like the most beautiful, simple approach. But because as you go up, guys throw harder, have better command, have deceptive pitches, then you start having to change at times to make it so it's more than just see ball, hit ball. Mm-hmm. So for us, as hitting coaches, we have to help the players come aware so they can handle some of the tougher things. But at the same time, when they get in the batter's box, it has to be simple. So that is you know, one of the true tests for us coaches when it comes to the approach part of it. Um, a lot of times the plan, you know, as far as how they go about their work, a lot of that is, you know, what's going to happen in the game? Are you going to see some curveballs? Are you going to see some velo? Are you going to see inside and out? Okay, let's hit those pitches. But when it comes to approach, you know, a lot of that's in your mind and, and what you're looking for and, and kind of the chess match that goes with the, with the pitcher. So, for us, when it comes to approach stuff, just like um, the velo machine being some crazy thing, a lot of times players can get into really detailed approaches that actually make them more passive, make them hoping that a certain pitch is there, make them you know not aggressive as opposed to just, hey, look out over the plate mm-hmm. and let's whack the ball. And then if the pitcher is showing that there's a reason to change, maybe we make our approach a little more specific. But a lot of times looking out over and, and looking for something that you can do damage on and, and staying with that is, is good. It's, it's not too simple. Um, so for us, just educating them about that, kind of a less is more at times. And then – and Ronnie said it, you know, he's starting a little more swing stuff earlier in the fall. We do the same. Let's, let's create the foundation of the, you know, quote unquote, controllable stuff. 
that, uh, you know, the swing stuff is always going to be there, but approach is pretty fluid. So, um, then, you know, okay, if a guy is throwing sinkers and sliders down, what are we going to do? If he is really a way away, what are we going to do? If he happens to come in, are you going to get rattled about that and change everything? Or do we stay the same? Those little things are conversations. And we have a real large responsibility to communicate that stuff to each person in a way that keeps things simple and, and works for that person because there's a lot of different ways to go about it. There isn't one way. Um, it's very different player to player and, and, and where you're at in the season uh, changes a lot. No, that's fantastic. And just to piggyback off of that, I, I think that we've all dealt with players who we just, for, for one reason or another, we couldn't get them to, to listen to us. We couldn't get them to buy in. And uh, Ronnie, you talked earlier about trust. And I think, it, I think I'm with you, uh, or I know I'm with you, and I think it all comes back to that. But, you know, what, what's, that, what's your best advice with, with guys who maybe you just don't connect with? Because I, I think it's easier to connect with some guys than others just based on my personality. And either of you guys can take this, either one or both. Uh, but we all have all dealt with guys that we just, for some reason, we just don't connect with them. Maybe it's swing-wise. Maybe it's just they're a turd and, and we want to help them, but they won't listen to us. Well, I mean, we've all dealt with that player, every single one of us. And so what, what, where would you go from there and what advice would you give? Yeah, you know, I think that um, I think that it it starts basically for us, and and you know, we have a we have an atmosphere at UW, and and the culture that is has been created there by Coach Megs, basically, where um, you know, on a day to day basis, we are constantly talking about the team, the team, the team, and it's 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 always going to be that um, kind of mentality in everything that we're doing, and so when you have the stubborn player, um, you know, and I think we, we all have those guys and, and in all honesty, most good baseball players are pretty stubborn. Uh, but when you have the stubborn guy, um, it's probably not a lack of buy-in as much as it is a lack of understanding. Uh, and if they can understand that if everything we're doing as assistant coaches or hitting coaches, um, is, is to help the team, the team, the team, the team, and, and you're recruiting guys that are bought into that. Uh, I think that um, it helps you build that trust with those guys. But there are going to be guys that are going to, you know, they're going to question a drill. They're going to question an approach. Um, and and I think a, a lot of times instead of just continuing to try to ram stuff down 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 the guy's throat or whatever, you gotta you gotta take a step back and figure out why why is he not on the same page as me. Um, mm -hmm. and, and what am I missing for him? Because ultimately it's not necessarily their job to believe in you. It's, it's your job to believe in them and get them to understand what it is you're trying to do. There's not a guy out there that is not trying to get better. And I think that that's the beautiful part. Um, if you do, and, and I know we have a lot of coaches with uh, coaching at different levels, but if you have guys that are just kind of out there to be out there, then that's a harder thing to deal with. But every guy that I'm fortunate enough to work with on a daily basis is, is that they want to be better. Um, so, so my job and something that I'm consistently trying to get better at each year is to uh, get them better and get them to understand that I'm there to help them. Um, so nothing I'm going to do is is going to is going to be with intent to be detrimental to their success. Because if we can get the guys better individually, 
if you can get the guys better individually, then if you have enough of those guys that get better, then your team's going to be better. So if they know that, um, I think that's the first step. But I think, I think that if you can approach it from a, I don't need to get them to do what I'm saying. I need to understand what they're saying, where they're coming from. Why is this not working for this guy? Uh, you know, what, what makes sense to work in my brain isn't working for this guy. Well, that's not, that's not his problem. That's my problem. I need to, I need to communicate it better. I love that. Great answer. Yeah. I, I'm Ronnie is, is right on with that. I, I think you first want to look at yourself. You want to look at your material, what you're saying. Um, and you know, the more you can be finding information, cross-checking yourself, talking to other people, you know, thinking back to your experiences, remembering what it was like to be a pl- to be a player, um, that can keep you in check. And, and like like I said earlier, you know, using the examples, you know, and and if you're fortunate to have been around major leaguers, that's great. If if you've been fortunate to be in a, some of the really special tough positions, as far as deep in seasons and and in tough championship scenarios, then you start to see what things do matter. But even if you haven't, you know, a lot of it is the stuff that we already know is important. You know, it's work hard, stay positive, stay consistent, you know, try to get better. Like it's, it's kind of how life works. It it doesn't necessarily have to be unique because it's baseball. So you can, you can hang your hat on that. If, If you don't know what it's like to be, you know, J.D. Martinez or, or what those guys are working on or what the World Series is like. Um, and, and like Ronnie said, uh, uh, so much of it is figuring out where the player's at. And a lot of times that's kind of tough because you might not w- like what you find. You know, there's there's a, a variety of reasons why some guys give you the not buy-in, not bought-in face or they act that way. Um and maybe it's hard for them or maybe they got something else going on, or maybe they just don't want to tell you they're working on something and they really believe in it. So, you know, if you can have that conversation and you can be, um, you know, approachable so that they can be real with you, then you're going to be able to have a chance to really get to where you're at. And then at that point you can figure out how to, to do it, you know, how to, how to get to what you think is good. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, lastly, I, I think if, if what you're trying to have happen can be defeated, then it's going to be harder to get them to buy in. But a lot of times when you get to the, the bottom of it and you figured out where they're at, it's hard for a player to be like, no, I, I don't want to get better. I don't want to work <laughs> hard. So yeah. sometimes it takes work, but if, I mean, that's what we're here for. I mean, that's kind of what our job is, is to get our group, whether we like every single one of them talent wise person, how they go about it, it's our team. Mm -hmm. So let's try to get them better. Oh, great answers from both of you. Uh, As far as uh, we, we, you you hit on game planning a little bit, Neil, just a, just a minute ago. And so I I want to, um, I want to be able to uh, kind of pick your brain about it a little bit. Uh, college schedules for both of you are pretty set. You kind of know who you're going to see on the weekends as far as, as starters go. And so how does how do you approach game planning, uh, providing scouting reports? Because uh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. We want a plan that works, but it's also simple for the player. And so walk us through your, uh, your I don't want to say model, but just your process of providing 
scouting reports or, or game planning information to your players? Gotcha. Um, a lot of times we, we have a good amount of experience playing against a certain team and, and maybe most importantly at times playing against a certain coaching staff. So you, you go into a series having some feel usually for how that program goes about their business. Um, we have a, a program now called Synergy, which I believe every team has where we can access video of that team, um, you know, in their, their games that they've been playing. Um, and that's a, a great resource, which allows us to really see. It used to be just scouting reports and you'd have to, you know, make calls, which we still do and, and, and text people that, that know stuff about the team. Um, but you start building your awareness of who you're playing. Um, maybe you've faced a certain pitcher, you know, the year before or, or whatnot. And the, the thing with hitting that's kind of tough as you start building your plan is you're not guaranteed to know what you're going to face. So, you know, a guy might be a fastball slider guy, but on Friday when you play him, his slider might not be good and he's more fastball changeup. Or, you know, these guys are developing college kids in, in, our, in our job. So, you know, they could be v building velo as the season goes. And, you know, we've all seen the scouting report in college where the guy's 86, 87, and you see that he's 92. And as a coach, you're like, oh, man, you know, wish I would have known that. So I feel like you got to be careful because you don't necessarily know what you're working with. And you also, you have to be able to continue to have the trust that the players want from you. So if you say, oh, this guy's all away, you know, and then the first three hitters go up and he's pounding them in, it's going to be a little harder for those hitters to, to be listening fully when you talk to them the next time. So that, that relationship is interesting. Um, and like I said, with approaches, a lot of times you're going to just be looking out over the plate and then you'll adjust if the pitcher is giving you a reason to adjust. Um, so if there's a unique pitcher that really has a, a unique sinker or he lives at the top of the zone, maybe he really has a 12-6 curveball with depth or something, we'll use some machines or even pitchers um, or, or, you know, staff that can throw that type of pitch, pitch to kind of get our guys' brains realizing that that stuff can happen on the weekend. We'll do that maybe Wednesday or Thursday. Um, so we try to simulate some of the stuff. But also all the while, it's, I feel it's very important that when it comes to game time, they're getting into the, into the box and it's simple. So I don't want to send them down some rabbit hole of, you know, Wednesday and Thursday, they think it's all away, all this certain breaking ball, and all of a sudden they're thinking so much when they could have just been up there. We didn't prep them at all. They're looking out over the plate and they try to hit the ball hard. So it's a balance. Um, and I personally don't give them tons of video and have them, you know, reviewing everything, everything, every single day. And, and lastly, to wrap this answer up, we get to see the pitcher warm up. And, you know, he's throwing pitches before the first inning. And then if I'm hitting seventh in the order, I get to see six hitters in front of me. So um, we're going to be developing what we're doing as the game goes. And sometimes it takes six, seven innings, but that's why we play nine. So 
a lot of stuff goes into it, but I think the most important thing when it actually gets to the players is that they're getting in the batter's box and things are simple and they feel that they can have a, a great chance to succeed. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm going to touch on that. So, like, I think that keeping it simple is the key to game planning. Um, you want to inform your guys <clears throat> and prepare them as well as you can. But, you know, we've all seen – We've all seen the reports. I mean, if those of you that have looked at reports where it's like, hey, this guy, this guy likes to work away, but he'll finish in. Sometimes he elevates. Sometimes he likes to get you to chase slider in the dirt. And mm -hmm. you could get guys to step in the box, be like, okay, so I have to protect the fastball away. Yeah. <laughs> might get thrown in. He sometimes elevates, and then sometimes he wants me to swing at the ball in the dirt. So that by doing that, all we're doing is just complicating things. And they'll for guys. take a fastball down the middle. <laughs> yeah. So we we have um, we have the ability as coaches too to completely bog these guys down uh, in, in a bad way. So I think knowing the pulse of your team, um, preparing them for what um, they're likely to face uh, is important. Um, but at the same time, not giving them so much information that they're literally in the box and they're fighting themselves or fighting their brain instead of focusing on the competition at hand um, with the pitcher. Uh, you know, so that's, that's always my goal. There's some guys on our team where I'll literally go up to them after we meet as a group before and we're saying, Hey, this guy, you know, he's going to be 89 to 91. Um, he likes to work to his glove side. That's his best side of the plate. Uh, he won't go to his off speed unless he's ahead in the count, you know, and that might be a typical conversation we'd have before the game. And then I'll walk up to guys after and I'll be like, Hey, this guy is basically going to throw it over that white thing. And if it's in the strike zone, you need to take a swing at, it. uh, and, and, and some guys are better with that, but I'm, I'm learning now that some guys, they want a lot of information. They want, Hey, this guy's 65% fastballs first pitch. Um, you know, this guy, when he gets behind in the count, is going to go to his changeup. Uh, that's that's not typical, but this is how this guy pitches, and and that helps certain players. Uh, and that's been a, a hard thing to understand um, and grow as a coach for myself is because um, I didn't want to think about all that stuff when I was in the box. I, I, I tried to keep it. It was pretty easy, just keep my my brain from working too hard. Uh, but I tried to just kind of completely kind of zone out and just focus on seeing the baseball. Um, but there are guys that, that they want the info. So you have to be kind of individualized like we are with everything and what we've been talking about today, but you have to be able to give the guys that want and need a lot of information. You have to be able to give them that, but you also have to be able, have to, be able to take your other guys who need to just step in the box um, with a clear head. You have to be able to take them and give them what they need as well. So how do you figure that out? You just ask them. Uh, it's, it's, you're not going to find it on a, on a spreadsheet. I can tell you, <laughs> you know, it's, it's through conversation, man. It's, it's just getting to know guys. Um, you know, it, it's, I think that, that, uh, what is special about developing the relationships with these guys is by the second and third year, I'll watch a guy walk up to the box and know how he's feeling, how he's thinking, you know, kind of where he's at. I might see him take a pitch and, and be like, okay, this guy's, this guy's not in there with the right mindset. You know, he's, he's got the wrong approach. Um, so a lot of that is through, through experience, to be honest, um, you know, and being around the game um, and, and really studying the game. But a lot of it is just through the relationships of, of what certain guys need. There's certain guys where if they're getting dominated off that machine or, or in a BP setting or whatever, or a drill setting, 
um, all you have to tell them is, hey, this is, this is beating you right now. You're losing right now. And if you can say that to the right guy, you, you'll be, the guys will step right back in and, 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 get, and start squaring the baseball up because all they need to be is challenged. Uh, they don't need you to tell them, hey, you're, you know, you're, you're not staying stacked in your forward move when you get to 50-50. You know, that's, not, that's not what they need at that moment. They need to be challenged. So that's just knowing your guys and that's feel. I love it. Great answer. Neil, you mentioned earlier that, and this is, this is me maybe paraphrasing what you said. And you mentioned that we, we have a plan until that plan changes or until we get hit in the face a little bit, and then you have to adjust on the fly in the dugout. So can you kind of walk us through maybe what that, what that looks like, sounds like, uh, do you, I mean, just kind of take us through what you meant. I would, I'm, I'm just thinking here, to some examples um, so I can say it smoothly. Um, I guess a good example is say you're facing a guy that's a sinker slider guy and um, you know, great. We're going to work on pitches down or we're going to hit and make some sliders in, in the days leading up to it. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be different person to person as the, the day goes, you know, and, and this is, and this isn't how I would talk to the player. So uh, <laughs> don't think this no, is how I'd say it. For us coaches, this is kind of what's behind what I'm saying. Uh -huh. You know, if, if, if the first guy in your first at bat hammers a fastball away, then that has a chance to change what the pitcher's doing. And the really good hitters, you know, can do that chess match in their head and, and whatnot. But with the college guys, you know, they're not all going to be big leaguers. And, and even still, not every big leaguer is the, the most big league thinker. You know, there's some guys that are good because things are simple for them. So as things change, for me, I want to make it so our team is consistent. And so, like, let's say you're facing that fastball slider guy and the guys are coming back to the dugout and it's clear that the slider really looks like the fastball. And so they're swinging at pitches in the dirt. And I remember that as a player, you know, like, why did I swing at that pitch that bounced in the dirt, you know, four feet in front of the plate? Was I looking for that? No, I thought it was a fastball. And I thought I was going to crush it. And then at that point, after I get out, now what do I do? And so a lot of that is to, to succeed in your next at bat or have a chance is, is – not getting phased by that poor at bat, not getting phased by the confusion that you had because you swung at something or got beat that, you know, something that went bad. So for myself as a coach in the dugout at that time, um, especially during the game, it's important for me to have my players back. You know, I, if they're really giving their at bats away, I'm not going to be happy about that. They know I'm not going to be happy about it. Right. And so it's about, okay, why was that bat, that bat bad? And what are we going to do about it? Um, and actually in the game, you know, there's some games where it, it's what you need to say is, hey, you know, just look for something up. Let's stay aggressive. And that's all you say because you can't go too far down into that. But there are some hitters where it's like, hey, you know, especially if they don't struggle at that and you see that they are struggling at it, why'd you swing at that? What do you got? And the guy's like, oh, man. Um, you know, it looks like a fastball and I might even say like, okay, let's look up 
And if you take a couple fastballs down for strikes, I'm okay with that because maybe that's what the adjustment that you need to make. Or, you know, maybe the guy, yeah, he's throwing that slider, but it's never a strike. So for the, for the young hitters, they're not always able to see those things that us as coaches, you know, that's our little checklist of does he throw the slider for strikes? Hey, he's not throwing it for strikes at all. So you can tell your team, Hey, he's not throwing that pitch for strikes. Let's be more disciplined, you know? So to answer that, it's when something affects you, okay, what are you going to do about it? And so for us as coaches, it's great if you can think about what to do, but then you also have to make the choice of what you say to the players. And, and you got to be very careful with that. And oftentimes just kind of doing less, you'll find that some players make the adjustments on their own or they go through that experience. And, and lastly, it really helps as the years go, you know, if, if that player that swings at that slider down, it's his first time doing that because he's a freshman, it's probably going to take him a little time and that might be something that takes some weeks or months for you to kind of work on how to make that improvement. But if he's a junior and you can say, hey, you remember last year against so-and-so when you're going through this and you made that adjustment, let's do that right now. And then he'll go, oh, click, got it. And he goes in and his at-bat has a better chance to succeed after that. So um, hopefully that answers the question. It, it's, you know, hitting is evolving and, and you got to know your team, your players, and, and, and look out there and, and help. John, one thing that Neil said that I think is important too is uh, is ask questions. So I think that um, if you see a guy struggling, instead of going up and just be ready to give him advice, ask him. Ask him what's going on. Hey, what do you got? What? How you feeling? Are you seeing the baseball? Are you balanced? Are you relaxed? Um, do you need to focus on your breathing? Um, but I think asking them, and if they straight up say like, "I honestly didn't see it," well why didn't we see it? Then we can evaluate it as a coach. But, you know, I think kind of touching on what Neil was saying is sometimes we're so we're in such a big hurry to tell them how smart we are and how much we know about hitting and, and, and try to help them immediately. And, um, you know, it's like, we want to show everybody how good this report is that we did. We want to give all this information. We're going to, we're going to tell you, tell you, tell you. Um, and a lot of times the best thing to do and, and what a lot of, good hitting coaches that I've talked to do is, is know when to back off, um, and know when to, you know, let them internalize it, um, self-evaluate. And then when they're really, when they really need you, that's when you can be there to step in. But I think a lot of us are quick to go in and tell them exactly how, how they're failing and why they're failing and, and what they need to do to not fail. Uh, and when you do that, a lot of times it can just put more burden on a player. So um, you have to be careful and know when, it, when, when giving someone something is going to be get too much for them uh, and when it's not too much for them. I love that. And, and one of the questions on the sidebar that I thought was really, really good, and both of you uh, have that Fullerton background, so obviously Ken Revisa inspired. And so uh, the question was, when guys start pressing mentally, do you have, help them with cues, uh, breathing techniques, or techniques to try and recalibrate them and, and get them to focus on the now and do cues differ when you're trying to help, help them in the AB, the inning, the game, or just in different situations. Neil, let me say one thing real quick. And then you, you talk about Revisa cause you know him 
a Go lot better than I do. But um, when guys are struggling, a lot of times it's not even it's not swinging. It's uh, it's conversations that need to be had. A lot of times, um, you got to get to the bottom of why they're struggling. Are they struggling because they lack confidence? Are they struggling because they're hurt? Um, you know, there, there could be several different reasons why a guy might be struggling. Does he have off the field stuff going on? Uh, so like I said, we have to be smart enough to know when not to go right back to a mechanical fix for everything that goes back to the black and white about hitting. It's not black and white. <clears throat> There's tons of gray, man. So, um, you know, I think that we have to, we have to understand our guys. We have to have conversations with them. And a lot of times you can help guys through conversation, just realize where they're at. Um, when guys lack uh, confidence, a lot of times it's because they can't relax and, and kind of uh, simplify in the box. So we've, I've used the analogy of when you're struggling, you have thousands of things going through your head about your swing, about your timing, about the pitcher, about what he's going to throw. Uh, and then when you're going really good, it's pretty, it's pretty clear. It's really simplified. So breathing techniques and, and you know, we, we were fortunate as players to work with Ken Revisa. And, and actually as coaches have him around as well and, and hear him talk a lot and Neil knows him a lot better than most people in the world. So um, I'm going to let him touch more on that, but just being able to use those breathing techniques along with some visualization stuff of, you know, I like to, I like to send our guys a lot of video on themselves um, having success when you can. So I think that just them seeing themselves over and over again, having success, especially when they're struggling uh, it might be like, Oh man, that, that looks nice. I like how that looks, you know, and help them to start get back on getting back on their own side. Um, but Ken was an awesome resource, and and uh, like you said, a lot of us were fortunate to, and, and a lot of his stuff was so um, simple and innate for a lot of people. But for some people, it took a lot of work to understand exactly how to get and understand what he was trying to teach you. But I'll let Neil talk more about that. Uh, gotcha. Jonathan, you have that, that sheet of paper. Are you able to put that up? I do. Let me, my help let me grab. with this answer. And I don't know how this works. This is I'm new to, well, I'm now starting to get real experience with the zoom thing due to this whole situation, but I don't know if this is podcast or zoom, but for the, the people that are on right now, um, this is just a sheet that we gave our guys in our first hitters meeting. Um, you can make it so you see the whole thing. And this is answering the, you know, the mental question. Um, but ideally, and, and I thought this would be good to kind of organize a lot of the stuff we're saying. And, and I think this stuff applies, you know, to coaches at any level, but this just has to be how we organize stuff. And, as we talk about this a lot, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, you know, at Northridge, Eddie Cornejo's with me and, you know, us, us two doing the offensive, you know, position player stuff, it really helps because he can convey this, the same kind of things. We work on this together. Can you zoom it out a little bit so it, it shows the, the, the bottom? Yeah, there we go. So when it comes to the mental stuff, everyone knows like breathing and routines, but, you know, this is something we gave our players. And up at the top, it shows some team offense stuff. So it's talking about, you know, what's important. You know, we're not a professional team where all nine hitters can hit homers every at-bat that they're up. You know, that's just not how it works. So sometimes we got to 
manufacture runs and you know you're going to face some Friday night guys that are that are special in in, in college baseball and, and even the guys that end up being in the big leagues hitters wise you know they're young hitters when they're in college so you're going to have some ups and downs being a versatile offense is important and when we talk to them we, we start by going over the foundations of hitting and we start there which is kind of like the physical stuff with the swing then once that's in a reasonable place we go to the approach and then a little bit later we start getting to the mental some of that's because it's a lot easier to work on mental stuff when the guys are struggling (laughs) and they're not necessarily struggling in the fall like they will in this in the spring Mm -hmm. and one of the things that's tough um is you know it's easy to breathe and have a good routine when you're not rattled but you know when you are it's hard for that stuff to make sense so some of what i found that really helps something as simple as you know the unselfish we over me that can help hitters in the box so much Mm -hmm. and before you even get to breathing or routines if they're just going up there fully bought into their team that puts them in a better mental place on base over hits, you know, that comes up because, oh, we got a runner in scoring position and we're down by one run. Now I got to do something. So if you can kind of get to some of those things leading up to the season, and, and this list is made basically by coming across all kinds of things where stuff has failed. So, you know, so, oh, our guys are trying too hard with runners in scoring position. Because they're, you know, they need that run or they're hitting 220, so they're trying to get hits. Okay, let's mm-hmm. write that down. Let's review that next year so we're not chasing it. Um, but I leave the mental part here blank, um, and you can you can take that off um, or, or leave it up, whatever you think is good. But I leave the mental stuff blank at the start because I think in the fall as you're getting to know guys – you want to start trying to figure out how they are. And if they are struggling, then you start figuring out what to do. Um, and a routine is just something to get you to have the best chance to succeed. And, and so what that means is different person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, on that sheet, it says, you know, one of the first things is in the swing part is where you stand in the batter's box which might seem really simple, but we got carved up by Gonzaga this year. And one of the main reasons was we weren't standing, you know, as a group in positions that allowed us to handle outside pitches. And we talked about it like, Mm -hmm. and it still was breaking down. So if that's important, that needs to be part of your routine. You go in there and you touch the, you know, certain part of the plate or whatever. So you make sure you're standing in the right spot. That's not mental, so to speak, but it is. So, you know, if a guy's failing, you can figure out what they're struggling with, and then you try to make a routine that's going to give them a chance to not do that. They get really hard on themselves. Make it so they say something to themselves where they're they're positive or aggressive or, you know, thinking externally. You know, and it could be like, let's go. You know, look at my bat. Take a deep breath. Um, so – you work through that stuff, but just like the approach stuff, you don't want to have it be taking over their game so that they forget to see the ball and hit the ball. Um, and then lastly, the, the breathing stuff, it, like all stuff, you got to work on it. 
So it, it's good to have guys breathe, understand breathing, um, you know, have them work on their routines in parts of batting practice or the cage and, you know, but it, it's different person to person and, and just like approach or working on a certain part of the swing, you got to analyze, you know, your player, your group, what do they need? And, and that's how you find the answers to that. But the reason I, I share that sheet is if you can really talk on a lot of the, the team offense or um, swing stuff, the controllable, physical, those kinds of things, then a lot of times that helps the mental stuff where, you know, um, they really are up there and it's simple and they are present and they don't have to have a routine for that. They're just totally bought into, you know, get the next guy up or, or whatever the saying is. I'm going to piggyback off that, but just, um, you know, one of the things since we're all in such a unique position right now with not being able to be on a field, not being able to be with our guys that we're, you know, we're used to being able to be with them all the time. But one of the things that we've challenged our guys with is, is work on the stuff like breathing techniques, um, and visualization, uh, and balance and, you know, just your foundation and your setup work on the things that oftentimes at this time in the year, we wouldn't be working a lot on. Um, you know, there might be times where we get the guys in as a group and say, Hey, we're, things are racing on us. So we need to settle it down. So let's, let's go through a breathing exercise or whatever. But right now we have so much time and opportunity to help our guys really dive into you know, what it means to go through a visualization exercise or what it means to um, understand the, the importance of breathing. And along with that is giving our guys, which has been a big challenge of mine, is making sure that our guys have uh, a plan and things that they can use right now to get better, even if a lot of them don't have access to cages right now. So we have a lot of guys, you know, we have some guys that either have one in their backyard or can get into one that because they know a guy and he leaves the back door open right now or whatever, and they're in there by themselves. But some guys don't have a tee, um, you know, they may not even have baseballs. So the challenge is getting them to uh, work on the mentality of hitting um, without being able to actually hit baseballs, which is, is a unique um, area to attack it because it's not what we'd normally be doing right now. Um, so not being able to be in a cage with guys, but giving them drills and ideas on how to focus on their setup and their, like I said, their foundation and, and really reevaluate, like, am I at a point in my setup, in my load, in my move where I'm unbalanced or unathletic and um, having them figure that out and be able to continue to work on it. There's a lot of guys that I really respect as hitting guys when it talks, when it comes to just straight swing stuff and, I know Doug, who we all know, Doug Latta, and um, you know he, he's told me that 90% of the of the setup and load stuff that guys will do is is without a bat, um, you know, and and that was kind of new to me. Um, but having been around him and been around guys that have been around him, um, you know, just being able to kind of work my load and and evaluate, like, okay, am I getting too far over my backside? Is my head you know, over my backside to where I get into an unpowerful or unbalanced position. Uh, well, can I adjust that and can I work on it to where it becomes a move that you don't even have to think about and it becomes very easy. Um, so that's all the stuff that we're trying to do right now to help our guys along with, um, you know, challenging them from the mental aspect. Neil touched on 
being aggressive um, and, and, and kind of talking about approach runners in scoring position while as coaches, we all see the stat as a team, we're hitting 218 runners in scoring position. Um, and we want to talk about it and we might say, Hey, you know, we got to get better. How do we get better runners in scoring position? Well, mm -hmm. you can make it worse by like every time now a guy gets on second base and now all of a sudden the whole team's thinking like, well, I hope right. we get a hit yeah. because now we're talking about runners in scoring position. So, um, you know, you have to, you know, you have to kind of be careful with that stuff. Um, you know, we, we had a, a thing where we were trying to toy with, you know, um, we as a, as a program are really big. We, we think limiting strikeouts is going to really help lead to success. Um, but how do you limit strikeouts? So everybody talks about the two strike adjustments and, and battling and, and widening up the zone. And Neil and I were fortunate to play with Justin Turner in college and one of the things that he's told me is, and he's told Neil, is he shrinks the zone with two strikes, which I think is a really unique perspective. But he's also in the big leagues, and those guys aren't missing there, giving two balls off the plate either way, uh, the umpires. But he shrinks the zone um, because if he tries to think about widening the zone, he chases. Um, and so that was a, an approach that he takes. And I think that, you know, it's just a different way to look at it than what I've ever looked at it before as. So what we were going to try to do with our guys right before the season ended was we were going to try to, um, you know, basically take a two strike in our two strike situation and try to treat it like you were OO or, or one or stay in aggressive. I think staying aggressive as a hitter is something that goes by the wayside for a lot of guys and especially when they're struggling is is just because they're swinging doesn't mean they're staying aggressive so let me let's not confuse that they might be swinging at balls all over the place that's not aggressive that's just that's just not having a plan and not seeing the baseball but I think when guys get in there and they're passive they become a lot worse as hitters so if you can get if you can preach stay aggressive attack the baseball stay in an aggressive mindset get to two strikes that doesn't mean I'm in a passive mindset the moment we become passive, especially um, with two strikes, the moment we become passive, I get balls thrown by me. So I have to stay in an aggressive mindset as a hitter. Um, and when I say aggressive, that doesn't mean open my zone up and swing at everything. Aggressive means see the baseball with an aggressive swing, swing, swing mentality and, um, and then trust that my eyes are going to tell me not to swing. I love that. That's great. Strength of zone, huh? Really cool, cool concept, and I and I think with with two strikes, I think you we could ask everybody in the room right now what what their two strike approach was, and they may all be different. Uh, you could ask every player what theirs is; it may all be different. And uh, but but I really like hearing that because it's you know, and and to your point uh, with aggression, if you don't ever get to two strikes, it's really hard to get you know to strike out. So, uh, Neil, anything to add as far as just two strike approach, aggression with two strikes, uh, anything like that, or, or you want to move on to another question? Um, I would just say, uh, this is one of the things that I think isn't touched on with two strikes a lot is how many hitters are trying to swing early to not get to two strikes. Um, and you know, especially with young hitters and, and young hitters could be a freshman in college. It could be a, a, a guy in double A that isn't what it'll be in the big leagues. You know, we're all scared of striking out. And it, 
you, I think it's important to address your hitters and find out if they're striking out more because they don't want to strike out or if they are turning counts around or putting balls in play that they shouldn't early because they don't want to strike out, you know, like, Oh, I rolled over on the first pitch six, three, but I didn't strike out. So, you know, breaking that stuff down to, to find out what you're working with so true. Uh, is important even before you get to two strikes. Uh, and, and I find that that, that's the case a lot, even with some good hitters. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, give one more story. We have a, a hitter real quick, and, and this will be short, but we have a hitter that um, is a grinder. I mean, this guy, this guy is, is what everybody wants out of a player. He's going to work. He's going to take the bats you want. Um, but he, in the fall, and, and one of my biggest things uh, when we brought him in uh, was, was that he strikes out. And, and trying to know that as a team offense, we're trying to limit that. So he would go up in the fall, and, and he's a good hitter, oh, oh, he's a good hitter, one, oh, he's a good hitter, oh, one. As the moment he got to two strikes, he became a guy that chased out of the zone. He became a guy that would be uncharacteristic with his swing. Well, he also made a, a major physical adjustment with two strikes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm not saying that that's bad. I think that there are a lot of guys that make physical adjustments with two strikes and I'm by no means saying that don't do that. But for this guy in particular, uh, he would make his two strike adjustment physically. And he's a guy that strikes out one of a, one out of every four at bats. So in a conversation that we had, it was, Hey, what's your, what's your, why do you do that? Well, I widen out because I want to see the ball better. I want to simplify okay, well, how many swings are you taking in your daily work from that position? Uh, well, not very many, blah, blah, blah. So the only time he's working on that is when he gets to two strikes. And he strikes out a lot every time he does that. So my challenge to him was, hey, let's not change. Let's not make as much of a physical adjustment um, and try to, te- try to treat that 0-2 or 1-2 or 2-2 count, 3-2 even. Try to treat that like you're in a hitter's count. And just changing the mentality – makes him a better hitter. So, um, you know, you look at the best hitters, the guys that really understand the zone, they don't, they're not afraid to get to two strikes because they trust themselves. Um, the guys that, the guys that are bad two strike hitters haven't conquered that mentality yet of like, Hey, I still have life. I can still hit a baseball in a gap right now. I can still, you know, take a good swing on a, on a pitch because pitchers make bad pitches with two strikes sometimes. So, sure. Absolutely. Love those answers, guys. And, and again, it's, it's so, it's just like everything else. It all depends. Uh, and, and it, that's such a lawyer answer, but it, it is so true. And I think you guys have done a great job of, of conveying the fact that we've got to get to know our players, get their trust and get, get to understand how they're thinking. And then we can help them put themselves in their best positions. Uh, but a couple more questions before you go. A mutual friend of ours, Craig Hyatt, who's literally like the follow on Twitter, um, he, whenever we figured out or you guys were going to come on, he, he wanted me to ask you and which if Craig asked you to do something, you do it. Uh, but he asked, how do you give individual attention to players during practice? Because we've all been there. It's really hard, uh, when you've got a, a large group of guys and you've got a very short time period, but how do you take those guys aside and give them the individual attention that they need and want to get better versus looking at it holistically as an entire team? Go ahead, man. Um, I think that's, for myself, 
personally, that, that sheet of paper that kind of outlines everything, that stuff's going to apply to everyone So as hitters. Um, and so I want to be checking those boxes and building up their ability to, to do those things. And I know it's going to apply to everyone. Um, and we want to create a, a practice structure where all the guys are going to know what they need to do in general. You know, this is how BP works. This is how the cage works. Um, and ideally, you want that machine to kind of be able to run on its own. And a lot of it, a lot of the success of that really um, is helped by your support staff, the people around you, the, the rest of the coaching staff. Mm-hmm. We all know what it's like if, if you don't feel like you have as much help as you'd want. You know, if you have good help around you, it, it strengthens, strengthens everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can get the machine working and you have your group know the basics that they need to be working on. So if you're not in the cage, they have some basics of, you know, the structure of how they do stuff. If you happen to not be by the bubble, you know that they have been educated to, you know, know what they're doing. Then that allows you to have the freedom to be checking in with the individuals. Um, And, you know, the obvious answer is you try to do early work or you try to do one-on-one stuff as much as possible. But our guys' schedule is, is really busy. Um, We need to make sure they have balance. And then we also have rules, the NCAA rules, which limit us. So, you know, in the middle of practice, I think if you can create the practice environment where, and it takes time and it's not easy. Um, but if you can create it where it's the machine's kind of going, then you can be checking in with the individuals and, and customizing stuff to what they, what they do. And we try to allow our batting practice to allow a lot of time for individuality. Um, same with the cage. And, and we spend the, the start of the fall trying to put in examples of things that can be done, you know, that a, a variety of drills even, let's say, or a variety of things to do in BP. And then once they're aware of that, it's okay. When you go into batting practice, we may have, you know, certain parts of the round that everybody's the same, but after that there needs to be some individuality where you're working on your approach, your swing, whatever you need to be doing. Um, so that's that's one of the toughest tasks for sure. Yeah, it's a it's a constant battle to try to make sure that you're giving each guy what what he needs. Um, it's in the fall. It requires a lot of um, organization because, like Neil was saying, like there might be a group of guys that. I, it's best to hit with them in the morning because of their class schedule and then the afternoon and blah, blah, blah. So um, I think it takes some creativity as far as uh, how to, how to get each guy what he needs. Um, but what, what we've, what, what we try to do, especially in the fall is instead of having the larger groups is kind of categorize the groups into smaller groups. And then within each category of group, like, Hey, these are our guys that we need to make sure that they're, um, that these are our, we call them run scores, run producers, and then the hybrids. So the run scores 
are the guys that we need to get on base. So we might have some skill stuff off the machine as well, including, you know, just the hitting stuff. Um, and then our run scores are the guys who aren't going to small ball much. They're going to bang. And then we have our hybrids who are kind of the split gaps and run and, and can also hit the ball over the fence occasionally. So, but I think that um, trying to make sure that each guy has a plan individual to them, even if it is within a small group is, is a good way to go about that because um, you know, myself and Joe Meggs, who's our, who's our volunteer, um, you know, we end up having small groups for about five hours in the fall, which it can really um, be daunting to keep the energy and the focus that those guys need. But we find that it's better to do it that way than to have two or three bigger groups and get it done in an hour and a half. Um, because then I don't think the guys get the individual attention that they need. And then the, the reality the sad reality to, you know, kind of, this isn't a ploy to the, you know, the third paid assistant thing or anything, but the sad reality is once the spring comes along is time is limited, uh, especially for, you know, what, what we haven't even touched on today is the fact that uh, recruiting plays a big factor into how available we are as assistants. Like if, even if we're there for practice, we might be leaving right after we might be flying in or flying home um, and getting to practice at, at, at the start of practice. So mm-hmm. um, just accessibility to our, to your coaches is a big deal. So I think that a big important part of it all is, is recruiting guys that love baseball. Uh, if you recruit guys that love to work and they love baseball uh, and you can give them the foundation like Neil's talking about, uh, you know, the, we're not going to be able to spend five hours a, a week in the cage with each individual guy. It's just not the way that our structure is set up. It's impossible. It's illegal uh, by the rules. And so we have to do our best to educate them as much as possible um, and then trust that they're going to get to the work on their own in the evenings because you, we, you won't have a successful team if guys aren't getting in and working extra on their own because we are so limited on time. Uh, so that is a, a huge factor of it is recruit the guys that want, want to get better. Um, and then as you start to implement what you value and what you find is important, and you build the trust with guys, you find that they end up working on the stuff that you want them to work on at night, even if you can't be there. Uh, and then one of the other things that I think is important, and I'm probably in a unique uh, uh, opinion here on this one, but I don't even care if our guys go hit with other guys uh, because I trust them. So, and by saying that, what I mean is like, they're going to go home for Christmas break. Well, they've got a guy that they've hit with for the last six, seven years or whatever. Uh, I don't expect them to not go hit with that guy. Uh, I don't expect them to, you know, I don't have that kind of ego in this thing. What I do expect them is if they find something that works for them, that they like, we communicate about it. We talk about it um, and we go through it together uh, and we might reevaluate it and say like, Hey, this is why I don't think we should do that. Um, this is why I think that's awesome, but we can always get better. The sad truth of the matter is we are limited with time. So I don't want our guys to not work. And, and, and so that means they have to go hit with another guy in the, in the winter break or whatever. Uh, I'm not, I'm not encouraging it, but it doesn't, it doesn't scare me because I think if you build the trust with those guys, um, they're going to do things that are going to help make them better if you've, if you've educated them well enough. So guys have to work on their own. No, a, a fantastic answer. And I, and I know you guys have to go, but uh, if you got time for one more, there was one just asked about technology that's come up a couple of different times, technology or just resources 
uh, if you guys could, and, and you don't necessarily have to go into detail on how you use them, but just some different things that you use uh, that you like. Um, I think we've all dabbled in a little bit of everything, but uh, we may not use everything uh, on a daily basis. So if there's anything that you guys use and you trust and you love and, and it's a staple in your program, do you, do you guys mind sharing that? I know that we, you know, we, we have a lot of nice things, um, which is, uh, you know, we're fortunate in that way. Um, one of the things that we will do is we use a rap soto a lot. We're getting track man put in and we have some of that stuff. I like to make competitions out of using those, um, you know, those resources. So we do a lot of stuff where maybe at the end of a hitting session, we might go team versus team where they jump in, they get one swing. Um, and on the rap Soto, you know, if you, if you look at the six, like if you basically look at where the highest batting averages are in the big leagues, if you look in that seven degree to, you know, 16 degree range, the good line drive, um, we'll just play games based off of the rap Soto. And, and, you know, sometimes I think that those read, they read it wrong, but we, you know, baseball is not fair. So we, kind of treat it like that. Like a guy might square a ball up and it says it was at 30 degrees or whatever. So it doesn't count, but they get points basically being in that degree setting because, um, because it's fun and it gives them something to kind of play with. And, you know, for people that don't have rap soto, that doesn't mean you can't play this game. Just, just put two lines up at the end of the cage and kind of let them go off the machine. And, and I think a cool thing is letting them kind of run through that and using that technology. Uh, we have a lot of the nice stuff, um, and we'll use it. Uh, the best thing we have is video systems. Uh, I think that as much as you can, you can videotape your guys. One of the things that we use that is like a 299 app on the iPad or the, or the phone is just the delay setting. So we'll have a setup often where our guys will, um, we'll have a side iPad for their round of BP. Um, and then when they come out, it's on like a 40 second delay. So they can, they watch their round from the side. And that is something that if you have an iPhone and you have $2.99 to spare, $2.99 to spare, um, you can get that. And I think it's free actually with the ad free one. If you don't, if you, oh, if you nice. don't mind ads. So, but just having something like that, I think it's cool because guys get out and they can see what they're doing. They can see, see the swing. They can see what they're, what they're working on. Um, you know, and oftentimes we will, we have our, our screen up in the cages and we'll, we'll run the rap soto stuff up there. But, uh, ultimately I think you have to use that stuff to, um, develop a, a competitive atmosphere as much as anything else. Uh, I like to look at how often guys are hitting the ball hard. So for, for our leading hitter on the team this year, he's a, he's a small left-handed hitter. Uh, his max velo off of, you know, a certain machine might be 96. Uh, but if he's constantly 88 to 94 in that range, that's great. Now for our big boppers, we want them to be in the 95 plus range. So um, we might have different standards for each guy based off of what success would be for them as an individual, but just kind of measuring how hard they're, how often they're hitting the ball hard in their upper, you know, realm of that uh, exit below. So but we don't dive too much into all that as far as like just living off of that. It is a, it is something that we do, but we use it more to provide energy and provide intent, uh, get guys to swing with intent, get guys to swing with focus than we do to um, really evaluate. Um, 
Yeah, like, I've, I've been around TrackMan, um, done some cool force plate stuff. Slow motion cameras are neat. I coached golf for those two years, and, and golf is at the time, especially a lot farther ahead than baseball. Baseball's caught up in some in some ways now, and it's just a different sport because the ball's flying in the air. It's not on a tee. Um, but I, I think a lot of those are just they're, – they're ways that can help you become more aware of certain things as a coach. So, you know, when it comes to KVS and different things that measure what's going on that you may not be able to see with the naked eye, that's neat. Um, but a lot of that stuff's expensive. And so not everyone has access to that. And, and certainly you can have success without it. You know, if it's not something you can come across it and, and you're a high school coach or, or a coach that doesn't have access to it, that's totally fine. Um, and then it's also like Ronnie says, it's neat to have that um, help your training environment and, and showing the, the measurement of the swing um, showing, you know, what the ball's doing number wise, um, is cool. So, you know, it lets the players see some things they may not be seeing if it isn't there and, and lets the coaches know as well. But, you know, coaches for a long time have been doing some of the things that the technology can do. They've been recording barrels. They've, you know, been telling guys to hit the ball farther, you know, hit the ball over the fence. You know, you're talking about ball flight there. Um, and we like to do new, no hook, no fade rounds. And that's, you know, the poor man's version of square the ball up well, probably make it spin right. You know, that, that speaks a little bit about your swing and what you're doing with your body. So, you know, if you happen to not have access to some of that stuff, there's different ways that you can, you know, touch on some of those things. Um, and, and I think that's kind of a neat thing. And then lastly, I think it's a balance where, I mean, something as simple as video, which has been around for a long time, obviously some hitters can just dive down the video rabbit hole and, and, and use that as like the most important thing to them. And there's definitely some value to having body awareness and, and being able to have a sense of your swing and, and being external as opposed to internal and internal into the computer so, so um it's cool to have access to that stuff and a lot of it is real good and it's you know each coach's choice essentially how you're balancing out that stuff but you can get some things done even if uh you don't have access to it I, I'm, I'm gonna touch on build off of neil's thing too a little bit but just saying like one of the coolest things that we are looking forward to being able to do, especially with the track man. And we do with the rap Soto already is, is, and one of the most important things I think about when, when I talk about hitting is, um, you know, I, I was talking, I was fortunate. I got the opportunity to have a conversation with Craig council, um, a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying how they have all this data and information and, you know, and it takes almost like a scientist to read some of this stuff. So how do you simplify that for your guys? Well, if you can take your data and understand as a coach um, who doesn't swing and miss and who doesn't swing at balls. So if they can look at guys that don't swing and miss and don't swing at balls, those are the guys that tend to have the most success, which is a super simplified version of all this stuff and all these charts and graphs that we, you could get. 
Um, but that's just a, a really cool thing. I think that it, it doesn't take a lot of um, scientific measuring tools to understand like, hey, don't swing at balls. And when you swing, don't miss. And if you have a lot of those guys, uh, they're probably going to be pretty successful. But understanding hot zones and, and that kind of stuff is really cool with some of that data and, and, and technology. Uh, being able to know that, hey, we're going to face on Friday night, we're going to face a heavy fastball guy that's typically up in the zone. Well, you might have three guys in your lineup that really struggle with anything up in the zone, especially if it's firm. So you might be able to adjust your lineup based on information that you got from the technology, which is that stuff is real and, and that stuff is valuable. Um, but I think to, you know, to kind of build everything all the time around that stuff can be scary and can make you um, basically almost like robotic as a, as a team and as a, as a unit. One drill that Neil mentioned, the no hook, no fade that I would like to share with everyone because I know we're getting close to the end here is, is something that, uh, we do a lot, especially in the fall, but on the main diamond is, is a, I call it no rollovers. Um, so basically no rollover on the pole side. And you talk about a drill that kind of takes a mentality and, and understanding, but once guys really understand what you're trying to get out of it, there's a lot of accountability that comes there. So you start it basically by saying like, Hey, basically if you roll over a pitch, if you top spin a ball on the ground to the pole side, so as a left-handed hitter to the, to the, right field line side of the second baseman as a right-hander left field line of the shortstop you're out your rounds over um and you, you you start to get guys to really focus on um on their swing on their approach on not doing that and what it does for a lot of guys is it puts pressure on them and before you know it they might have been raking and all of a sudden we start doing that drill and it's roll over roll over roll over uh because they haven't been able to um kind of take that pressure and apply it. So you're putting pressure on them to do that, number one. Uh, and then what we, what we want when we go to a pull side is that, is that air. We want air to the pull side. We don't want ground to the pull side. So it kind of teaches them that. And then the best part about that drill, in my opinion, is it teaches guys uh, to understand which, which locations of a pitch that I can swing at that I can be successful with and not get my round cut short to a one or two swings. If there's a certain pitch that the BP thrower is throwing and every time I swing at it, I roll over, what am I going to do? I'm going to learn not to swing at that pitch. Uh, so it becomes a, a play discipline and kind of pitch selection drill as much as anything, which, um, which I think is super valuable. But the, the, when you start that, you'll have guys that are really frustrated. They might go through a 10-minute BP round and only get six swings. Um, but the more they buy into it and the more they do it, they understand the importance of it, and uh, they'll, they'll get better at it. So, and, and then the accountability factor is what I tell them is, I'm not going to kick you out of the cage. You need, to, you need to own it yourself if you roll over. If it's a questionable one, it's up to you to decide. And their teammates will rib them. They'll start giving them a hard time. But it becomes a fun thing where it's like, you know, like guys try to cheat and get extra swings and their teammates are like, Hey, get out of there, man. It's a rollover. And that, that goes back to the accountability factor of all this stuff. And these guys understanding, you know, that they have to take accountability with their own swing and ownership of it and all that. So even with the drills. Man, that's, that's fantastic. And, and I, I love the ideas behind it. Uh, man, it's whenever I heard, uh, heard you talk in the fall, uh, Neil at the ball yard or last summer, whenever it was and the no hook, no fade. I, I, I love that. And, and the no rollover. I mean, it's something that 
that no matter the technology or the lack of that we've got it, it's something that's simple, but it makes, makes so much sense. Uh, I'm going to leave your Twitter contact info in the chat. I'll uh, throw that in there and then I'll put it in the show notes. But I, I, before you guys go, is there anything else that you'd like to leave our, our listeners? Uh, we really appreciate your time. And I think we went a little bit over on the time that I, that I told you guys, but man, it's, it was worth every minute on my part and I hope it was on yours. But uh, Neil, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners or leave with them before you go? And then we'll, Ronnie will end with you. Um, I mean, this is really cool. And, and especially at this time where whether we like it or not, there's some parts of coaching that have slowed down. It, it's really neat to be able to hear all the different people talk. Um, you know, there's a variety of, of podcasts and Zoom calls that have been going on. And, and it's also you got a little more time to, to call some of your, your friends in coaching and, and check on stuff. So that's been really neat. And, you know, I think it's, it's easy to just be within your own coaching staff, you know, where you're, you show up to the field and, and you got the, the small group around you. Um, but the more that we can be aware of what other people are doing, you know, whether it's good, bad, or different, doesn't matter. Just being exposed to stuff is great. So this is, I'm real happy to be a part of this and the whole community that's, you know, trying to get better is pretty neat. And, and, there's a lot of learning going on. So I'm just happy to be a part of it. Yeah. Same with me. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we're fortunate to be able to be, um, in the positions we are as coaches and, you know, I've got former teammates, former players, former or current coworkers, um, former coworkers that are kind of listening in and it's fun to be able to, uh, talk with Neil and you guys about hitting and baseball. Um, so we are definitely in a fortunate uh, position as coaches and, and we are all trying to get better. Uh, sometimes that, that um, kind of gets forgotten on when we're talking about hitting, and especially when, when guys get into it too much. There's no, there's no one right way or one wrong way, I, I believe. Um, you know, we're, we have a lot of guys that are helping the cause and, and coming up with new strategies to make guys better, but ultimately uh, hitting is hitting and you have to, you have to get in the box and want to compete. Um, so it's, it's fun to hear different ideas from different guys. And I appreciate the opportunity to get on here and talk. I get to talk to Neil all the time. So, you know, <laughs> he and I get to chat um, pretty regularly. So, but it was, it was fun awesome. to get to share with you guys and, and I appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah. yeah on thanks the, a lot. On, Neil, sorry. Uh, it is Neil Walton 11. I'll make sure that I fix that in the show notes, but, but guys, I, uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, it was an awesome conversation today. I've got a ton of notes that I'm going to have to decompress and go through uh, myself, but looking forward to future conversations and, and thanks again for joining us. Hey, keep doing it, John. Thank you. Good stuff, man. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.